Hello there, welcome everybody to part two of our series. We're doing a, a month-long series now at the end of summer uh, on what is CrossView? What is our church all about? Our vision and our four pillars. I'm gonna put up uh, on the screen right now uh, just a very simple outline of our vision statement and the four pillars we have as a church. And you'll see that our ultimate vision, the reason we get up in the morning, and really this should be true of all Christians, not just at CrossView, but our biggest wholehearted desire at CrossView is that we would all be people who worship Jesus with our whole lives. Not just worship Jesus once a week in a great service, but actually that we would worship Jesus seven days a week, 24 hours a day in everything we do. That's the goal. That's the whole reason we exist at CrossView. And then holding up that vision, we've got these four pillars of the of these four core things we want to we want to concentrate on across you. One is everything is spiritual. We talked about that last week. Uh, another pillar is justice and mission. These are the things we want to focus on so that our entire lives are worshiped to Jesus. Number three is character and emotional health. Number four is renewing the mind. And then all of this is built on the foundation of God's word. We're not just making up our own stuff out of nothing. Uh, we base all of these things and how do we worship Jesus and who is Jesus and how do we do these things? All of that is based on a biblical worldview. And so we're working through that in this series. And so today we're just going to jump right into it. We're in pillar two. Last week we talked about everything is spiritual. Today we're in pillar two, which is justice and mission. And I want to read you a passage from Isaiah 58. And Isaiah says this, in Isaiah 58, he says this, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Verse 2, for day after day they seek me out. In other words, they're having their devotions every single day. They're praying, they're doing all the religious stuff, right? They seem eager to know my ways. Skip ahead a couple of sentences. Verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Now, now God is going to give them a very important answer to why he's not paying attention. Because these people were doing all the right religious things. They were doing their, what we would call in modern times, now devotions. They were going to church. They were reading their Bibles. They didn't have Bibles, but that kind of thing. They were doing all that. They were praying. They were fasting, okay? And then he says this in verse 4, yet... On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. You can do all the spiritual things you want, but if you continue to exploit people and oppress people and abuse people and, you, and misuse people, none of that spiritual stuff matters to God. Is this the kind of fasting I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? This is God speaking. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6. Is not this. Now, you want to see what God really wants. What does God really want from us as people? What does it mean to live for him and to please him? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? So what kind of prayer, what kind of fasting does God want from us? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. What does God want from his people? For us to be people who set free the oppressed, who look out for the vulnerable, who protect those who are in need of protecting. This is where our prayers should lead us. As churches and as, and as God's people, we need to pray. We need to talk to God. We need to listen to God and, and, and be sensitive to his spirit. We need to pray. But where are those prayers going to lead us? 
If we are the people of God, and if we are truly following the Spirit, we are going to end up with acts of justice. Prayer that does not lead us to justice is not the kind of prayer God is looking for. And so we go to Luke 10. Who should we be doing justice to? So Isaiah 58 is a very famous passage. Luke 10 is another very, very famous passage. Who should we be doing justice to? And let's go to Luke chapter 10. And this is going to end up in one of Jesus' most famous parables. But I'm hoping that we're going to see it in a whole fresh light, in a whole new way uh, today. Verse 25 of Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good question, right? Jesus says, answers him, what is written in the law? Uh, Jesus replied, how do you read it? And he, that's the lawyer, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, next verse, verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So again, we're back at this thing. Now, I'm not done yet. We're going to get into the parable because Jesus knows that we should know this. But here it is again. Love God, love people. That's the thing. You want to be a success in God's eyes. You want to be a spiritual giant in God's eyes. Grow in love. Love God and love people. Okay? But now this lawyer kind of feels dumb. He feels like he gave Jesus too easy of a question. And he feels a little ashamed of that. So he's going to ask a follow-up question to kind of justify himself. So verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, most of us, many of us who are watching this right now, you know what's coming next. It's the fa- one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told in the Gospels. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, before you tune out, okay... Uh, Jesus told this parable because he might be, oh, we've heard this a hundred times. You know, some of these stories, some of these parables we've heard so many times. It's like your, your brain can just go on automatic pilot. But I want to tell you that when Jesus originally told this parable, none of his hearers went on autopilot. Well, first of all, it was new for them. But more than that, Jesus intentionally told this parable to be offensive. And I believe that we've lost the offensiveness of this parable. And as a result, it's become boring to us. But I really believe that if Jesus was here in Southeast Manitoba today, in Steinbeck area today, he would retell this parable and he would change the characters and it wouldn't be boring anymore because he would put a point on it and it would become offensive again. But let's read it in the original. Then let's examine what made it offensive in the original. And then let's see how Jesus might want to apply it to our context today. So verse 30, uh, Jesus had an amazing way of telling these incredible parables that communicated so much truth in a very short amount of time. So in just a couple of verses, he says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half half dead. That's part one, okay? Very famous. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a lawyer, a scribe, you know, a, a person who is an expert and a lawyer in those days was an expert in the Mosaic law, the scriptures. So the people he's going to name now as the bad guys in this parable are the good guys in his, in, in the, 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 you know, the audience he's speaking to. He's making their good guys into bad guys in this parable. Okay. So he says a priest happened to be coming down the same road. And when he saw the man who's been beaten, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so 
already he's, he's intentionally, he's not doing this accidentally, he's intentionally offending them, okay? He is pushing their buttons because he wants to show them what love really looks like. And the fact that in their smugness, they had lost a lot of their ability to love. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, okay? And now he really lowers the hammer on them. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So, of course, in this famous parable, Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, you have to understand, highly, highly offensive to the people he's talking to. Again, not offensive to us because we're like, oh, what's a Samaritan? And, and, and we're all schooled to not be offended by, you know, racial differences, even though, you know, there is still racism at work in our society, no question. But most of us have been, you know, we, we don't think of it overtly. We don't dislike someone because of ethnicity. But you have to remember in those days, the, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And it wasn't just a racial thing. I mean, partially it was that. But there was more to it than just the racial thing. So if you're a Jew... Uh, it's not just the racial side of things, but these Samaritans also believe weird things. So the Samaritans, you know, they were related to the Jews back in history, but uh, but they had had a lot of mingling with Gentiles and stuff. And so they the the Samaritans only used the books of Moses. The rest of the the Jewish Bible they threw out. They threw out the Psalms. They threw out all the prophets. They threw out Proverbs. They threw out. So this is the Jews considered the Samaritans to be a heretical sect. They're like, you don't even, you don't even use the whole Bible. You've chucked out a bunch of the Bible. And they had weird beliefs about, you know, they didn't believe the temple in Jerusalem was the right place to be. They were, uh, they were more likely to compromise on Greek and Roman customs. So the Jews really, it wasn't just an ethnic thing. It also had to do with beliefs and what the Jews saw as heresy and wrong things. Now, so interestingly enough, and it's true, the Samaritans did have, according to the scriptures, you know, before the New Testament, the, the Samaritans were heretics, okay? They had wrong beliefs about the Bible, okay? They did compromise on Roman and Jewish customs. So the Jews were right about some of the things the Samaritans believed. And yet, even with their wrong beliefs and heresy and messing around with, with the Bible, Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of this story. And of course, intentionally picking a fight with his audience, picking uh, someone who would be incredibly offensive to the people who are listening to him tell this parable. Now, my question is today. If Jesus was here today and Jesus was making a point, because Jesus wanted to make the point that we're not supposed to just love or respect people who get have all their theology right or who think the same as us or who look the same as us. Jesus is making the point that actually some of the people that are most despised or that have weird beliefs or that all these sorts of things that you might think of them, that those people can actually be a good Samaritan. Those people can actually do right in God's eyes. They can show love. We can, you know, they can be a hero in a parable of a story told by Jesus. Now the question is, if Jesus was here today, who would he put in that story? I'll tell you, it wouldn't be a Samaritan because none of us knows a Samaritan. But what if Jesus changed it? Now I don't know exactly who Jesus would put in his parable today, but what if we took a, did a little thought experiment here in this message? And what if we thought of different groups of people that we know in modern times that if Jesus was speaking to us today and wanting to get our attention, he might put them into as the hero in this story. So let's reread verse 33 and also and then also tack on verse 34. And what if Jesus was here today and he told this parable and instead of a Samaritan, he inserted a Muslim into this story? 
Would that offend some Christians? Would that offend some of us? Why would that be? Look at what, what if Jesus told the story this way? But a Muslim, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. What if this parable was called the good Muslim instead of the good Samaritan? And what if the bad guys, because again, remember that the bad guys, when Jesus was speaking, he picked people from their ranks. What if the bad guys were the leader, let's say, and I'll just pick one that we all know. What if Jesus said, and the leader uh, or the director of Focus on the Family passed by on the other side? Now, I love Focus on the Family. They do tons of great work and all that sort of stuff. I'm not picking on them for any reason. But I'm just saying, when I say that and give that example, you have to understand how offensive this parable was in the original. How would you feel if Jesus said, and an evangelist and a, or a famous evangelical pastor or author that you respect, these are the guys that pass by the beaten man on the road. These are the bad guys in the parable. And then a, a Muslim came by and did the right thing. How would you feel about this parable then? How do we feel about that? Does that change some things? Can you start to see the point that Jesus was making? Could we as Christians ever learn anything? And again, I'm being a little bit facetious, okay? You have to understand I'm being a little bit sarcastic because Jesus is doing that in this parable. But have you ever thought about, could we as Christians ever learn from a Muslim? And the answer is yes. When Jesus is telling that parable, this parable, he's saying, you proud people, you don't think you could ever learn from a Samaritan. Do we as Christians not think we could ever lose, learn from a Muslim? Have you ever thought about the fact that our, you know, the kinds of people we would be bothered, and I'm going to insert some other people in here, into this parable, but the fact that we would get bothered by any people shows that as Christians, there's a subtle form of pride, just like it happened to some of the Jewish people in the New Testament times. We're, we're no different in terms of our humanity than they are. Do we do? We have this kind of subtle form of pride that we think as Christians that we're the we're, that we have it all together. That we're the best behaved. Is that actually true? You know, I did a little research. Um, George Barna, and if anybody of you wants the uh, wants the link, I can send that to you. But uh, you can Google it as well. George Barna, one of the most uh, famous, trusted, you know, Christian uh, researchers out there, does a lot of research and polls and statistics. Uh, in two thousand and eight. Uh, he, he published a, a study that, he, and he was going off of some other studies that have been done, but that found that, for example, just for one example, divorce rates, that divorce rates among Christians are almost equal in North America here to non-Christians. Now, some other studies have found that there's some differences, maybe, maybe a slight difference of six to 10%, but whatever the case is, uh, divorce rates between Christians and non-Christians are actually, uh, probably fairly similar. And you say, well, well, what are you, what point are you trying to make? The point I'm trying to make is that just because you're a Christian doesn't make you better than anyone else. I'll tell you something about us as Christians. We sometimes have this idea that we're that we're better than people. We're not better than any people. You know what we are? We're regular people who have found the one who will forgive us of our sins. We found the one who gives us hope for all of eternity. But that doesn't make us super. We should be more humble and more grateful for that forgiveness. Um, because we of our humility that we recognize that we're no different than anyone else. We're regular people and we have regular 
problems. We can learn from our non-Christian neighbors. And Jesus was trying to get that point across and about love and humility to his to his Jewish listeners in their day. It was Samaritans uh, who who they looked down on. I've actually heard from, and I've mentioned this in some other sermons before, I, I haven't been shy about talking about this, the fact that during COVID um, in, in uh, this area and other areas, uh, you know, many people of influence have commented to me, a number of different ones, that in their experience over the last couple of years, it's often been Christians who have been behaving worse than non-Christians. Now that's very sad, but also what it should do is just humble us to remember that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. Don't think of yourself as better than anyone else. We're not better than anyone else. We're people who have found the source of forgiveness and that should make us incredibly grateful. Well, what if, what if instead of a Samaritan or Muslim, Jesus made an atheist the star of this parable? What if he made, you know, a couple of famous evangelical Christian leaders that we all just super respect? What if he made them the bad guys? And then in verse 33, we would read, But an atheist, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Would that tweak us at all? Would that bother us at all? Did you know that there's many atheists out there that actually do very loving, compassionate, wonderful things? That's absolutely truth. Even the fact that I have to say that, or that could be surprising to some people, shows how as Christians, we make these stereotypes. But I want to try one more substitution. One more. This is just a thought experiment. We don't know what Jesus would have used as his example of the Good Samaritan parable. He could, but, uh, if he was here today, but he wouldn't have used Samaritan because we don't know any Samaritans. If he came to Southeast Manitoba, what if he would have done an atheist? What if he would have done a Muslim? Or what if he would have put into this story a gay man or a lesbian woman? What if the Good Samaritan parable read like this? But a gay man or lesbian woman as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, some of you might think right now, and you might not even be able to admit it to yourself. You might just feel it inside. But you might say to yourself, oh, when you put that in there, that makes me feel real uncomfortable. That feels like something wrong, Chris. And like, Chris, like how, could you, how could you even do that? Um, by the way, if that's what you're feeling right now, that's what Jesus' original uh, audience felt when they heard this parable. This was not a boring parable to, him, to them. This was a parable that was challenging them. Do they really hear what Jesus is saying about loving your neighbor and justice? Some of you are wondering, oh my goodness, the fact that Chris would even dare to put that in there means he must have changed the definition of marriage. No, I haven't. I haven't said that. Jesus didn't change his definition of doctrine and what the Bible should be when he put a Samaritan in there. Our Crossview Statement of Faith clearly says that we believe the Bible defines marriage as between one man and one woman. I haven't changed any of that. All I've done is put in a person who for, unfortunately, for too many Christians in this area, it makes us uncomfortable to think that Jesus could put a gay man or a lesbian woman into the Good Samaritan uh, uh, parable and that that might make some people uncomfortable. What if this wasn't the Good Samaritan parable? What if it was the good gay man parable or the good lesbian woman 
parable. I sometimes wonder if a big segment of us as evangelicals have made, whether it be Muslims or atheists, or maybe it's LGBT people, LGBTQ people, if we've made them the new Samaritans in our day. People that we don't want to talk about, people that we don't want to mix with, people we don't want to have conversations with because there's so much fear. Do you see examples of that at all? Have you ever felt that kind of fear? Have you ever seen that kind of attitude among your fellow Christians? I know I have. What would Jesus have done? What would Jesus have done if he was here in Southeast Manitoba today? I'll tell you what he would have done. He would have sought out LGBTQ people and he would have had conversations with them. That's what he did everywhere he went. He had conversations with all the people people thought he shouldn't have conversations with. He had conversations with women. He had conversations with Samaritans. He had conversations with Samaritan women. He had conversations with Roman soldiers. He had conversations with prostitutes. He had pro uh, conversations with drunkards. John chapter four, I challenge you to go and read this in your devotional time, uh, some of your devotional times this week and meditate on it. John chapter four, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well and his disciples are shocked because he sits down beside her and she and they have a conversation and they're absolutely shocked and as the conversation goes on we find out uh, not only is this shocking because she's a Samaritan not only is this shocking because she's a woman but also this woman has been divorced five times and Jesus is just talking to her and now she's living with her boyfriend and at the end of the conversation go back and read it Jesus doesn't condemn her he says come back with all your friends and family there isn't anybody that Jesus would have shunned. He would have looked for conversations and he would have built relationships. He absolutely would have. Luke 15 is another one. If we could, if we could all just spend some time meditating on these two chapters this week, John 4 and Luke chapter 15. Here's how Luke 15 starts. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Who is congregating around him? The marginalized the despised, the ones that all the religious people were scared of. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners, like welcomes. That, that offended them. He shouldn't be mixing with them. He shouldn't be talking to them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Think about that. Jesus welcomed anyone and everyone. He welcomed people that weren't doing what the Bible says. He welcomed people who just had a low status in that society. You know, women and Samaritans had nothing to do with sinfulness. But he welcomed all those kinds of people. And I have no doubt that those religious leaders, if they were here today, they might call Jesus. I don't know. What are some of the things we would call people like Jesus in our day and age today? Maybe some more fearful Christians, they might say, oh, you know, he's going a little bit more liberal. He's kind of, he's drifting from the truth, right? He's kind of in a gray area. He's, you know, I don't know, he's an emergent Christian or a, a progressive Christian. Or we have all these labels for Christians that aren't staying nicely in the box where it's, where it's safe. Okay? And Jesus didn't care. Not about that. He cared about the people. He didn't care about the rumors and the things that they might say about them, him. Now, we're talking about our second pillar across you, justice and mission. What are you hoping to find when you come to Crossview? We're going to be starting up services in physically in person on September 11th, Saturday, in just a few weeks. And I'm excited about that. I'm also scared of my wits. 
I have no idea. We're going to run two services simply because uh, we just have no idea. And are there going to be any restrictions and those sorts of things? We might have uh, not very many people. We might have uh, full, we might have too many people. It's going to be glorious chaos and I'll probably be laughing out of pure nervousness the entire weekend, okay, on, on the Saturday. But what are you hoping? If you're watching this sermon right now and, and, and you're considering yourself to be a part of Crossview and this vision that we're pushing forward on, uh, I wonder what you're hoping to see when you come to Crossview. Are you hoping to see only people like yourself? Are you hoping to see only people who agree with you and think the exact same way as you? Because if that's what you're hoping to see, I just want to warn you, that's not a church, that's a club. Okay? If, you're, if we're just hoping to get together, if Crossview Church is just going to be a group of people who all think the same, I mean, that's what the religious leaders had back in Jesus' day, and he challenged them with it in a Good Samaritan story. If we're just hoping to have a church that is just purely everyone just thinks the same and looks the same and this is what we feel comfortable with, that's a club. But the religious leaders were offended at Jesus because he didn't want a club. He came for justice. He came for the vulnerable. He came for the oppressed. He came for the down and outers. He came for the messed up. So what are you? What are, what are we going to do at Crossview if um, you know if a, a group of of Sikhs would come in with their you know beautiful turbans and 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 colors and stuff? That for me would be awesome. I would be so pumped. Or if or if we had some atheists come into an event and we were talking with them and listening to them even, what would we think of that? What happens when uh, two men come into our services? holding hands, a gay couple, or two women. Are we, gonna, are we going to be afraid? Are we going to look around? Are we going to think our, to ourselves, oh, this is a sign of the end of the world, or that our community is collapsing, or that the church is... If you're thinking any of those things, we have not taken the example of Jesus seriously. Jesus had conversations with everyone. He loves everyone. And the Good Samaritan is his parable to challenge us on that fact. Now you say, well, at what point do we get to tell uh, people the truth? I'll tell you when. Let me put up three things because some Christians are afraid to love. We're more afraid of people than we love them. And we need to repent of that. When, when you're more afraid of people than, than you're able to love those people, that's something we need to repent of. We need to acknowledge it. We need to turn to Jesus and say, please help me out of this prejudice. But you want to know when we get to tell people the truth? I'll tell you when. Three things. First of all, first try living the truth in love. Show before tell. Second of all, bring people to Jesus. He has a way of bringing them around to the truth. And I could tell you, I mean, there's books I could recommend here and stuff. So many testimonies of people who have come to Jesus, and then in the coming years as they walk with him, how he works in their lives and things, sinful things and stuff, they start to leave them behind more and more. And thirdly, earn the right to speak truth by first building relationships, having conversations, and deeply listening and empathizing with the people you want to speak to. This whole thing of Christians blasting truth 
and uh, and all this sort of stuff on social media and just being loud and, and throwing that out there is not the Jesus way. And we are Christians who are following Jesus. So what does all this mean when it comes to justice? Okay, As God's people, we looked at that and we're going to go back to Isaiah 58 yet. We're at the end of this message, but I want to show you two things. What does this mean when it comes to justice? What can we do? How do we apply this? How do we take the parable? How do we take Isaiah 58, that prayer should lead us to justice, and this parable of the Good Samaritan? And how do we live these things in today's day and age and culture? And the first thing I want to say is this. We need to educate ourselves and listen. We need to become aware of vulnerable people and people groups around us, as well as injustices in our society. How can we work for injustice as Isaiah 58 uh, tells us to, or as the parable of the Good Samaritan challenges us, if we can't see the injustices around us, if we can't hear the hurting people around us? The beginning of justice is listening and relationship. Listening and relationship. You know, the, the past 50 years, the relationship between the church and LGBTQ people has been very, very strained. Okay? And part of the reason for that is because there is not, I'm not saying all the reason, there's all, it's all very, com there's lots of complex things going on. But let me tell you something. One of the big things is that as Christians, we have not listened. We've not listened to people's pain. We've not listened to people's pain. Have you ever actually sat down with someone who is attracted to people of their same gender and just listened to their story? Or do you just get mad based on, you know, news clips and stereotypes about some agenda that's out to get the church and our kids? And again, it's more fear than it is love. But have you ever sat down and actually talked with a person who has same-sex attraction and listened? Do you know there's a, there's a myth out there that many Christians uh, still believe today? Too many Christians still believe today this myth that people choose to be attracted to people of their own gender. And nothing could be further from the truth. People are born. I've had so many conversations over the years. People who, uh, you know, in the LGBT community, people who are attracted to members of their own gender... And from their earliest memories, brothers and sisters, from their earliest memories, they know something is different about them. And they don't know what it, what it is. In many cases, in communities like ours, they're very ashamed of it. All of their friends are falling in love with, whether it be boys or with girls, and they find themselves not going that same direction, and they don't know what to do. Many of them are terrified. Many of them don't know how, who to talk to. This is actually real. Have you ever sat with real people and listened to their pain? Doesn't mean we have to change all kinds of theology, but before we even get to all that theology, can we just sit and listen? Listen and empathize. We can't get to justice. We can't get to reconciliation. We can't be the hands and feet of Jesus if we can't have conversations where we enter into someone else's story before we think we have to preach. Or what about our indigenous peoples here in Canada? How many of us as Christians have said extremely hurtful and ignorant things? Like, why can't they just get a job and move on? Oh, I've said things. I repent. But in years past, I have said ignorant things like that about our indigenous peoples. Horribly prejudiced and ignorant things like that. 
And how many of us as Christians just think, how, why can't we just forget about, you know, the past and move on? The fact of the matter is, it's pretty hard to forget the past when we don't really know the past in the first place. Many of us don't know enough about the past and what's happened here in Canada with our Indigenous peoples to forget anything. And I know that for some of us, it's terribly uncomfortable when, uh, you know, when I talk about something like this at church, but I'm going to go back to Isaiah 58, but I want you to remember, we are sitting in the Good Samaritan parable. And we have told that story far too often with a smug feeling of looking down on those Jewish hearers because we're like, oh, they look down on the Samaritans. We are too civilized as Christians in the modern day. We don't look down on any people. But as soon as I bring up some other people groups, we realize in our community, there are too many Christians with prejudice and ignorance who say hurtful things. And you say, yeah, but, but this, but this, but that. Actually, I've been shocked, you know, as over the last, you know, couple of months as the residential school, uh, you know, school issue and, and reality has been in our news here in Canada for the last couple of months. I was shocked when these stories first coming out. I mean, I knew about residential schools, but I didn't really know. And I've been reading all kinds of articles and, and, and books and, um, and talking to many uh, of, of, you know, people around here. And I've been shocked at how many people like me, we say, well, we didn't know. How do we not know? That's ignorance. We can't, we can't blame that on anyone else. That's just, that's actually ignorance. And ignorance keeps us from loving. Ignorance keeps us from, from praying for justice. I don't know what the solutions are. Someone says, well, what, what's the solution? I don't know the solution, but I'll tell you the first step. The first step is conversations. The first step is listening. The first step is feel the hurt and stop making comments that actually come out of ignorance and that are very hurtful and prejudiced. Uh, one book I want to suggest, I'm going to suggest, I'm putting it up on the screen right now. I'm going to suggest right now. It's not a Christian book. Can you suggest non-Christian books at a church? Yes, you can. But I want to recommend to you a book that I've been reading uh, the last uh, the last week, um, a little over a week. But 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. Um, and it's only 105 pages long. It's very easy to read in big print. I love it. The more people who can read books like this or, but it's just a history. It's a well-written, very informative history of the relationship between Canada and the indigenous peoples and the laws and the residential schools and dates and all that sort of stuff. Um, I wish every Canadian Christian would read this book or one like it. And if we could all just hold our strong opinions for just a little bit. If we could hold on to our strong opinions, and before we have any more strong opinions, if we could educate ourselves, if we could listen from a different perspective. Have you ever thought about, like, why are there, um, you know, why are there reserves out there? Why are so many Indigenous people living in reserves? How did, how did this all happen? How did reserves happen? What are they? What are they for? Many of these things we, we don't even know. Did you know, again, Isaiah 58? And the Good Samaritan parable tell us we can't just ignore these things if we're going to be the people of God. 
Did you know for, and one of the things, you know, as Canadians, we like, we often are very smug about the United States. We think, you know, they had a lot of racism, you know, they had slavery and, and, and they did have slavery and they did have a lot of racism, obviously. But we think that as if our country is exempt from that stuff. But did you know that, that indigenous people here in Canada did not even have the right to vote until 1960? Till the 19, or yeah, 1960. That's in the lifetime of my parents. Did you know that uh, Indigenous people were denied the right to even form political organizations to speak on their behalf until the 1950s? Did you know, here's an interesting law. Did you know that it was illegal to raise money to pay for legal fees for Indigenous people if they wanted to go to court to defend themselves against, you know, when, when the government or people were cheating them on some of their promises? I mean, this is, this is in our own country. Some of the reasons in our own country, this is a, this is, there's systemic things that we actually, before we can move on, we have to actually look back. We haven't actually looked back, most of us as Canadians and as Christians. And Isaiah 58 says, if you're praying, if you are praying, this is the kind of prayer that God wants from us. That when we see things in our society, in our land, it, we actually, prayer should lead us to a place of caring. But some of the reasons that were given in our Canadian Parliament as to why Indigenous people should not be allowed to vote, here are some of the things. And this just shows the, the, the racism that was there in Canada, okay, in the last century. In our Parliament, our politicians argued that Indigenous people were not capable of civilization and would eventually become extinct. What a horrible thing to think or, or say. That Indigenous people were incapable of handling voting rights. These are things that were said in our Parliament. That extending the vote to Indigenous people represented an encroachment on the rights of white men. Again, you say, but all of this happened so long ago, can't we just forget it and move on? The fact of the matter is that what's happened is in our country, we created generations through racism and some of the uh, systemic policies by our government. We literally created generational trauma. Those residential schools were, and, and I know sometimes people want to argue, and they're right, sometimes people argue, but not everybody who worked in a residential school is evil. That's true. You say, I, I know of some good people who were in the residential schools, or I know of some, some good, there was actually some good schools, and some students had some good experience in the residential school. We don't have to deny that the whole residential school thing, it's very complex, and not everybody who involved, was involved in it was evil. Not every experience that in the residential schools was pure evil. But the system itself overall was evil and did evil and tremendous, tremendous harm. Here's a quote from a doctor. Do you know that they actually put, and, and many churches, and by the way, if you want to be one of those people who say it was just the Catholic Church, it was not just the Catholic Church. It was not just the Catholic Church. Okay? It was the, it was, it was the Protestants as well. Okay? Evangelicalism wasn't really a, a big movement at that time, but it was, it was our stream of church too. Anglicans, Presbyterians, United Church, Methodists. Okay? All involved in this. Okay? All involved in this. And they knowingly put, in these residential schools, they knowingly put these kids in buildings that were unsafe and unsanitary, knowing that many of them would get sick and die from things like tuberculosis and the flu. Look at what Dr. Peter Bryce, okay, who was, the, uh, who was in charge of, of, uh, 
of, um, oh, I have it here. He was in charge of the, uh, the medical stuff for the residential schools and, and, uh, and that sort of thing, 1907. He said this, Indian boys and girls, and of course, they used India. I'm not using that, but they use that. Indian boys and girls are dying like flies. Even war seldom shows as large a percentage of fatalities as does the education system we have imposed on our Indian wards. They, they literally, this is him giving his recommendation to the government and saying, this is horrible. Tuberculosis, the flu, we're literally, we're putting them in unsafe, unsanitary buildings. We're cramming them together. And many of them are getting sick and dying as a result. Seven years later, the government do, didn't do anything about it. Seven years later, the deputy superintendent uh, general of Indian Affairs, a long title, said this in, in or three years later, I should say, 1910. He said this, I'm going to put this quote up on the screen too. We actually just need... As churches, we need to take time to have our eyes opened. Because as we pray, this is the stuff God's going to say, okay, you've talked enough about all your stuff. Now it's time for us to talk about what I care about. So in 1910, this is what the Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs said. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating so closely in the residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared towards a final solution of our Indian problem. That, my friends, is horrific. That our democratically elected government, and we can't just blame them. This is, yes, some of you are going, yeah, but that is in the past, we didn't do it. Yes, but we're reaping the fruit. Sin bears fruit. And we have to acknowledge that we're reaping the fruit of that sin. And if there's gonna be healing, we can't just ignore it. One more quote from Duncan Scott as well. Four years after that quote, he said this, it is quite within the mark to say that 50% of the children who passed through these schools did not live, is that not horrifying? To benefit from the education which they had received therein. And yet, and after that, it, it's true, the death rate didn't stay at, you know, 50%, as, as Duncan Scott was saying there, throughout, you know, uh, the next bunch of decades. Um, but it was still horrific. Tuberculosis and flu were huge killers because of the unsanitary and unhealthy conditions. And yet, our government continued with the approval of the people, our, the people of Canada who kept electing them. The government continued to make attendance at these residential schools mandatory until 1969. Until 1969. Why are you talking about this in church? Because we don't dare pray as a church and then try to ignore these things. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. And you say, what's the solution? Well, I don't know what the solution is. The first step is for us as churches, as we pray, you know, it's so funny to me as churches, we want to pray and then we make our own lists, right? But Isaiah 58 tells us the list we should be making. Okay, we make our own list to God. We want to pray for this. We want to pray for that. We want to pray for this. We want to pray for that. And it's all very good. And, we, and yet we ignore the fact that right in our backyard, right in this last century, people who are still alive today, that in our country was created a cycle of trauma 
that then created children who were traumatized, torn away from their parents for years on end, put in very unhealthy and sometimes abusive situations. They grow up to be um, traumatized parents who as a result of that, you know, living with their own trauma often brings trauma to their children and you get this generational cycle of trauma. And as, as God's people, if we want to know what God's putting on our prayer list, some of these things are the things he's putting on our prayer list. So what he says, so educate and listen is a start. I, I don't know all the solutions, way too complicated for me. But as churches, we need to know, we need to listen, we need to care. Secondly, at Crossview Church, we want to build strategic partnerships over time. It's not going to happen. We're just barely getting started. But over time, we want to start strategic partnerships with ministries that are doing effective justice work in the name of Jesus. We want to partner with them. We're not going to partner with a thousand. We're not going to partner with a hundred. But over time, with relationships, we want to partner with ministries that are doing effective justice work here in our community. You know, hopefully with some indigenous, you know, uh, stuff. I would, we would love to be connected some way to give back. The church has done harm. The church needs to be part of the solution reconciliation. And then also around the world in all of it, in the name of Jesus. Well, I want to close this message. And I want us just to take a little bit of time. Just 60 seconds. I want us to take a little time. And I want us to think, first of all, maybe make a note about John 4 and Luke chapter 15. And why don't we just meditate on those a little bit this week. Or the Good Samaritan story in Luke chapter 10. And then let's ask God, justice and mission. This is why I'm going to keep bringing up some uncomfortable topics here at Crossview. Because I don't want Crossview to be a club. We're meant to be a church. And if we're going to be a church, we have to do like Jesus, which means we have to have the conversations with the conversations that would make some of us sometimes uncomfortable. We're going to have to challenge those so we can love people like Jesus loved people. Let's pray. Father, is there anything you want to put on our hearts today? Each of us as individuals. Is there anything you want to put on our hearts? Something this week that needs to change in our attitudes towards people, towards LGBTQ people, or towards indigenous people, or anyone else, Father. I pray that we, you would give us relationships. Give us more relationships with LGBTQ people. You would seek them out. Give us more relationships with indigenous people. Give us more relationships, Father, with people who are helping with orphans and widows and vulnerable people and elderly, Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen.